Remain standing for the sermon text, the epistle lesson from the very end of Romans 2. Pay attention because this is the infallible word of God. For circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law. But if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you who, even with your written code and circumcision, are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. Let's pray. Oh God, we pray that as your word goes forth that it would do its work in saving and sanctifying, that it would circumcise uncircumcised hearts and that it would encourage those who already belong to you, those who have been saved, those who have been born again from above, that it would encourage them in seeking praise from you. And we ask for your spirit who does this work, the same Spirit who inspired these words to show up in a mighty way today as we consider and meditate on the truth, the truth that sanctifies by your grace. We pray this, we ask for it in the name of Christ Jesus, amen. Please be seated. You must be a Jew to be saved. That's Paul's message in today's text. The only way to go to heaven when you die is to become a circumcised Jew. If you're not circumcised, if you're not a Jew, then on judgment day, Paul says you'll receive no praise from God. Only Jews will receive praise, Paul says in verse 29. So whether you're a man or a woman, a boy or a girl, you must be a Jew to be saved. You must be circumcised to have eternal life. If you don't become a circumcised Jew, you'll perish in your sins. This would be a bad time for me to fall over dead and not explain myself, right? Now, of course, I'm not talking about physical circumcision. I'm not talking about becoming a Jew outwardly, am I? Paul says that being an ethnic Jew will not save you. There's no decisive saving benefit to being an outwardly circumcised physical Jew. What I'm talking about, what Paul's talking about, is spiritual circumcision, becoming a Jew inwardly, having a circumcised heart. To be saved, you must be a Jew on the inside. To go to heaven when you die, you must become a Jew in the secret place. In your inner being, that's what that means. To, to inherit eternal life, you must be circumcised by the Spirit in your heart. So, if you've not become a true Jew, if you've not been inwardly 
circumcised by the Spirit, you'll perish in your sins. Now, Paul's using a different metaphor to say the same thing that Jesus says to Nicodemus in John 3. The metaphor Jesus uses, you'll remember, is new birth. Starting in John 3, verse 3, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, Nicodemus, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So the, metaphor, the metaphors are different, but both Jesus and Paul emphasize the agency of the Holy Spirit in bringing about the inner change, the inner transformation that must take place in a person before he can enter the kingdom of God, as Jesus calls it. It's the Spirit who blows and gives the new birth. It's the Spirit who creates the inner Jew, the true Jew inside of you. It's the Spirit who circumcises the heart, the Spirit who enters into the secret place of the soul and makes a new creation, transforming you from the inside out. So if you're, if you're relying on anything else, you won't receive praise from God. If you rely on being baptized or being a member of a church, you'll perish if that's your foundation stone. If, if you rely on partaking of the Lord's Supper or being raised in a Christian home and just being around all these good things all the time, if that's what you're relying on, you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. As I said in another sermon, those those wonderful things swirling around you have to land in your heart. The only thing that matters is a circumcised heart. Only spiritual Jews are saved. So today we come to the end of Romans 2. And Paul continues his argument. It really that goes all the way back to the beginning of chapter 2. And his main point has been that the religious Jews need to be saved by Jesus. They're sinners just like the, the rest of the Gentiles. They, the Jew needs the righteousness that comes from God just as badly as everyone else on this planet. Just as badly as any unreligious pagan Gentile. The conclusion that Paul's driving at, we're going to jump ahead here, is made very explicit in Romans 3.9. This, this is where he's headed. We need to know this. What then? Are we better, we Jews, better than they? Not at all, Paul says. For we have already charged all people. Yeah, that's what, that's, really, the argument goes back to chapter 1, where he starts with the Gentiles and then goes to the... And his point is, we, by now, I've charged everybody with, with sin. I've charged all people, both Jews and Greeks, that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous. No, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. So Paul's level, leveling the playing field for all of humanity. Actually, what he's doing is he's just, 
he's recognizing, he's pointing out that in God's eyes, the playing field is actually truly level. The Jews don't have the high ground that they think they have. They don't get the extra credit on Judgment Day that they think they're going to get just because they're Jews. And the Gentiles are not at a distinct disadvantage just because they are Gentiles. All of humanity, Jews and Gentiles alike, are by nature objects of God's holy and just wrath because we're all by nature slaves to sin from conception on. So, so there's no Jew or Gentile in the history of the world who has ever been righteous before God. No descendant of Adam has ever been righteous before God. No one on earth has ever made the personal choice to seek after God and to do righteousness apart from, apart from the new birth, apart from the circumcision of Christ and his spirit. So Paul's talking about Jewishness in Romans 2. But he doesn't introduce circumcision in particular until verse 25, our passage today. Physical circumcision was the central sign and seal of the old covenant. Circumcision was the God-ordained ceremony by which male Jews were brought into the covenant people of God. But you see, the problem is that over the centuries, circumcision had become a point of pride. Circumcision became the basis for religious complacency and self-righteousness. The assumption among the, the leading Jews of Jesus in Paul's day was that becoming a Jew by physical circumcision somehow bestowed righteousness on the one who was being circumcised. So Paul addresses their spiritual pride, their religious complacency, especially as it relates to circumcision here. So in verse 25, Paul explains circumcision as it relates to the law, circumcision's relation to the law. He says, for circumcision is indeed of value if you practice the law. But if you are a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. So this is Paul's first step in leveling that playing field. The first half of that verse says circumcision counts as circumcision if, and only if, you practice the law. In other words, circumcision is only a meaningful sign and seal of God's covenant blessings if you're actually loving God and keeping his commandments. If it, it's only good to you if it lands in your heart. The corollary to this, the, the truth on the other side of the coin is the second half of the verse where Paul says that circumcision counts as uncircumcision if you transgress the law. In other words, if you've been physically circumcised for religious reasons, but you don't actually love God and his law, then for all intents and purposes, you're uncircumcised. None of God's promises to the children of Abraham are yours. Religious ceremonies, even biblical ones, even good God-ordained rituals, don't give you in themselves a special relationship with God apart from a living, active, obedient, law-fulfilling, law-keeping, as Paul says, faith 
in God. So it's helpful for us to replace circumcision in this passage as we think about applying it. Replace circumcision with baptism. Baptism is every bit as important of a ritual, ceremony, sacrament as circumcision. But we can say, for baptism is indeed of value if you practice righteousness, if you keep the law, if you do the word of God, if you're not just a hearer of the word, but a doer of the word. But if you are a transgressor of the law, if your faith does not produce works, then your baptism has become unbaptism, non-baptism. To drive the point home, in verses 26 and 27, Paul discusses uncircumcision's relation to the law. He's talked about circumcision's relation to the law. What about uncircumcision's relation to the law? Now remember, the last point in verse 25 was that the circumcision counts as uncircumcision if you transgress the law. Now in verse 26, he says that uncircumcision counts as circumcision if you keep the law. If then an uncircumcised person keeps the righteous decrees of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted, imputed as circumcision? And the answer to that question that Paul presents is, yes, it will. That's, that's what he's going for, a yes, yes, it will. The non-Jew who keeps God's righteous law is counted as a Jew. He's counted as circumcised. He's counted as righteous. Now, this might raise some questions. What do you mean... What do you mean keep the law? I didn't think anybody can do that. Just hold that question. We're going to address it. But first, I just want you to see what Paul's, can you see what he's doing here? Can you see where he's going? Little by little, he's leading us to the conclusion that true circumcision, true Jewishness manifests itself. It, it makes itself known by producing obedience to God. Obedience that springs from the heart, from a new heart a reborn heart. There are a bunch of so-called Jews, Paul says. A bunch of so-called circumcised Jews who go to the temple and go to the feasts and observe the Sabbaths and only eat kosher food and physically circumcise their sons on the eighth day. But most of them are not really, truly Jews. And we know this, Paul says, because they don't practice the law. Their hearts are not overflowing with righteousness and the fruit of the Spirit, as is the case with the true Jew. On the other hand, there are a bunch of natural-born Gentiles who don't go to the temple, who don't attend the feasts or observe the Sabbaths. They, they eat bacon. They, they, don't, they don't stay ritually clean. Most significantly, they don't get physically circumcised. And yet, they're actually Jews. True, bona fide, circumcised Jews. And the evidence of this is the steady current of obedience springing forth from born-again, circumcised, new creation hearts. You see, true religion is about inward realities, not externals, fundamentally. It always has been. And this is not just a new covenant thing. It's always been the case. In the Old Testament, God said in Hosea 6, 6, I desire steadfast love, not sacrifice. Now, 
when he says that, do we, do we think, okay, so they, he didn't desire sacrifice at all. There, there were no, had no purpose. No, he's prioritizing, right? I, I desire steadfast love, not sacrifice. I desire the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. God desires true religion, which begins on the inside, inside and works its way out. Biblical religion is inside out religion from not just in the New Testament, from beginning to end. And it'll be that way f- in eternity, forever. That's what God wants is our hearts. God wants spiritual circumcision rather than physical s- circumcision. On the last day, he'll praise the inward Jew, not the outward Jew. In verse 27, Paul does what he often does. It's very helpful pastorally. He takes his subject matter and he kind of turns it a little bit and he forces us to look at it through the lens of the last day of history. When Jesus returns from the perspective of judgment day. He writes, and the physically uncircumcised person who fulfills the law will judge you, Jew, who though you have the written code and circumcision, are a transgressor of the law. Here Paul echoes our Lord's condemnation of the unbelieving Jews uh, in in his day uh, when he was on the earth. Jesus said that on the final day, Gentiles would rise up and judge, rise up in judgment against the Jews that rejected their Messiah. In Matthew 12, for example, Christ says to the generation, his generation of Jews, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here uncircumcised law keepers will judge circumcised law breakers on judgment day along with baptized law breakers on judgment day. There are, and, and so there are two ways to understand what Paul's saying here. And I think, he's, I think both are true. And I'm gonna just give you both. First, Jesus and Paul are saying that the obedience of the Gentiles will stand as accusatory evidence against the disobedient Jews when Jesus returns. Gentile obedience will shame disobedient Jews. And and in this way, it will judge them, okay? Second, Jesus and Paul are saying that True believers, true Jews will be appointed by God as actual judges. So it's kind of a literal thing that he's saying here. The circumcised in heart will rule and judge on thrones, Scripture says, along with Christ, the supreme judge. That's what John says in Revelation 20. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those believers to whom was committed the authority to judge. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until a thousand years were ended. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they, the first resurrection, the believers, they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him 
for a thousand years. So you get this idea of reigning in judgment with Christ the king and judge. So the circumcised in heart will reign and judge with Christ. The uncircumcised in heart will be condemned and judged by Christ and in some sense by his people. Coming back to our text, the beginning of verse 27 refers to the physically uncircumcised person who fulfills the law. Now, some Bible readers get confused and it, it is easy to get confused when we hear Paul say things like this. When, when they hear Paul say that, you know, fulfilling, that it's possible to fulfill the law, to keep the law. Can a person fulfill the law? Can, a per, can any of us do the law? Can you? But Paul seems to be assuming that it's possible to be a law keeper. Now we, so we, we object, right? But wait, Paul, I... You know, I thought, I thought you believed, as you, as, as you say in Romans 3, that there's none righteous, not even one person. No one seeks after God. No one does good. So which is it, Paul? If, if no one is righteous, if no one seeks God, if no one does good, then who are these people who supposedly are able to fulfill the law? In verse 27 there, and other, and other throughout Romans 2, right? Well, let's let Paul answer this question in two parts. He's got a two-part answer this morning. First, let's look at what he says in Romans 8. And then we'll come back to Romans 2. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Romans 8. It might be helpful to see this. And so the question we're putting to Paul is, how is it possible for a person, you know, besides Adam before he sinned, right? How is it possible for a person to fulfill the law? Okay, so we're going to hang out here for just a few minutes in Romans 8. Now get, there's some background to this too. So we're kind of backgrounding our background here, right? Uh, Romans 8.3 says this, For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh or because of the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. Stop. So, we haven't got to Paul's answer yet, but we need to make sure we're getting his logic here But before he gets to his answer. What, what, does Paul, what does Paul say the law could not do there in verse 3 of Romans 8? Because it was weakened by the flesh. What could it not do? Well, it couldn't make anyone righteous. It couldn't save anyone. In fact, it had the opposite effect, right? And not because it was, is bad, the law itself is a wonderful thing. It, it was designed to bring God and man together. The law that God gave Adam in the Garden of Eden was designed to make their relationship stronger, sweeter, deeper, closer. If Adam had obeyed the law, he would have been infused with, with more life and glory and greater closeness to God. There would have been reward. His obedience to the law would have been counted to him as righteousness. The law, as Paul says in Romans 7, is good. It is to be delighted in. It is perfect, David says, and its purpose is to revive the soul. And it can still have that purpose, as we'll see in just a minute. Now, I fear that 
a lot of our theological discussions about the uses of the law, right? The, the, the various uses of the law. That's a theological conversation. Systematic theologies talk about the two uses of the law, the three uses of the law. I fear that they leave out the most fundamental intention of the law, which is to bring us closer to God. The original purpose. But when Adam plunged himself and his descendants into sin, he made it impossible for him and us to use the law as it was intended. Now the law curses and condemns us. It's not its fault. It's our fault. It doesn't produce more life in us as it was designed to do, but instead it kills us. Romans 8.3 says that the law couldn't accomplish our salvation. The law couldn't do what Christ did, Paul says. So, so we screwed up the original purpose of the law in the garden, and from that time forward, the law killed us rather than giving us life. It exposed our sin rather than dealing with our sin. It couldn't deal with our sin, but it could sure highlight it, expose it, show it for what it is. But on the cross... Romans 8, 3 says, Jesus dealt with our sin. He, the last sentence, he condemned sin in the flesh, in his flesh. Now look at Romans 8, 4. We're getting to his answer, to our question. He condemned sin in the law. Why? Verse 4, so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Do you see Paul's logic? In verse 3, the law kills. It can't save. Jesus saves. But, but once we're saved, right? Once Romans 3 has happened, Jesus has condemned sin in, the flesh, in his flesh. Verse 4 says that we're then able to fulfill the righteous requirement of the law. That's talking about us there. It's not talking about what Christ did on the cross. He, he did it perfectly, and that's the foundation. He obeyed the law perfectly. That's at the very bedrock of our salvation. But there in verse four, he's talking about how we're able, because of what Christ has done, and because we're in Christ, to fulfill the righteous requirement of the law. We're able to love God and love other people, as the law requires. We're able to walk according to the Spirit instead of the flesh, as he says at the end of that verse. So when Paul says that no one is righteous, no one seeks after God. No one does good. Not a single person. He's talking about all of us by nature. He's talking about uns the unsaved person, the natural man, as Paul calls him elsewhere, us, elsewhere before regeneration, before salvation. The man who's still under the curse, still dead in his sins, still being condemned by the righteous requirements in the law, still being pulverized by the weight of the law. But when, ta when, when Paul talks about the person who fulfills the law as if such a thing is possible, he's talking about the saved persons whose sins have already been condemned in the flesh of Christ on the cross. The, that person, that person, instead of being crushed and condemned by the law, is able to fulfill its righteous requirements as he walks in the spirit rather than in the flesh. Not perfectly, not, not, as, not nearly as faithfully as Christ was in doing that, 
and we need his. We, ours is not enough to save us. We, we can't impute our righteousness to ourselves and be good with God. Right? That, that Christ did that, what Adam failed to do in the garden. That righteousness is imputed to us. But in Christ, having had that righteousness counted toward us, we then can begin to fulfill in our lives the righteous requirement of the law. So that's the first part of Paul's answer to our question. How is it possible for a person to fulfill the law? It's possible because Jesus condemned our sin. He bore the curse. He, he was born under the law as we are, and yet he bore up under it. And then he gave us his spirit. So we're, we're able to do this. Now the second Paul, part of Paul's answer comes at the end of Romans 2, in verses 28 and 29, where Paul fleshes out, if you will, the inward circumcision of the true Jew. He writes in verse 28, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is done outwardly in the flesh. So to fulfill the law, you've got to be a Jew, and being a true Jew has nothing to do with externals at the core. The true Jew is a Jew in the secret place, in the inner self. And the way we become the way we become a Jew in the secret place is by being inwardly circumcised. The true Jew has been circumcised by the Spirit in the heart. That's in verse 29. But he is a Jew who is one in the secret place, and his circumcision is that which is of the heart by the Spirit, not by the written code. And, and that phrase, not by the written code, if we were to paraphrase it, it, would, it, would, it means not in fulfillment of the, of the letter of the law, the written code of the law. That's not what we're looking for. When Israel was about to enter the promised land that God had given to his son Israel. After spending 40 years, you remember, in the desert, in the wilderness, because of their stubbornness of heart, Moses preached to them one last great sermon right before he died and right before they entered the land. And uh, what do we call this sermon? The book of Deuteronomy, right? It's, 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 it's Moses' sermon. It's a big, long sermon. I thought about just coming to church one, one morning and just preaching that sermon. But in Deuteronomy 10, Moses says, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your father's and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples, as you are this day. Therefore, circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. 
For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. You see, even in the old covenant, the goal was a circumcised heart. Later in Jeremiah 4, the prophet will condemn Israel, or command Israel rather, circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts. But you see, God knew that Israel wouldn't do this. They weren't able to circumcise their hearts. And receiving the law just made it worse, made the situation worse. So toward the end of his sermon, in Deuteronomy 30, Moses looks to the future and gives God's people a promise. You remember what that promise is? Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring. So that, here's the purpose statement, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. When did God fulfill that promise? When did God begin removing foreskins from hearts by the hundreds and thousands and tens of thousands and and millions by now? He began in the year 30. In A.D. 30, at the beginning of the New Covenant. In Jeremiah 31, God had promised, so this is a a co-promise, Behold, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Okay, that's, where, that's where we were in Deuteronomy when, when Moses is talking. Not like that one. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. And I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Ezekiel 36 talks about God taking out the heart of stone and giving a a malleable heart of flesh. God's promise through Moses and then through Jeremiah was that a new covenant is coming in which the people of God will be able to obey God and keep his law because God will circumcise their hearts and write the law on their hearts. The covenant in which this takes place is the one that you and I are in. It's the new covenant in Christ's blood. And that's why Paul says in another letter, in Colossians 2, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Okay? The result of your heart circumcision is that you... Praise God and receive praise from him. And you praise God from the heart. You love God from the heart. You obey God. You keep his law from the heart. It's not just external. Because God has renovated your heart, changed it, written his law on it, given you a new heart. And so the result And the last verse there is that your praise is from God. 
the inwardly circumcised Jew receives praise from God rather than from people. Look at that last sentence. His praise is not from people, not from men, but from God. The true Jew will receive praise from God in the world to come because he seeks it in the world that is now, in this world. In John 12, Jesus condemned the Jews because they loved, they loved the glory that comes from man far more than they loved the glory that comes from God. And that, that's the result of a heart that has not been circumcised. The desire for praise, you see, is universal. We're, we're gonna seek it. The, the, the desire for praise for commendation, adoration, approbation. It's built in. The uncircumcised heart tries to satisfy this desire, this need by turning to people for approval and praise. And sometimes we Christians do this too, right? Sometimes the old Adam, the old uncircumcised heart rears its head. We turn to our colleagues for commendation. We may, we may turn to our children for approval. We, we might seek admiration from people online. Perhaps you, want a, perhaps you want everyone to esteem you. And so you try to please everyone. But if the spirit is present and your heart is circumcised, you're free from the need to be praised by man. You're free from that. Those shackles have been broken. You're free to find your satisfaction in the praise and approval of God and God alone. Not from your husband, not from your wife, not from your boss not from your church members, fellow church members, but from God alone. And you're free to find your satisfaction in God alone even if no human being on earth ever praises you or commends your work or tells you good job or notices all the sacrifices that you're making. <clears throat> Imagine the joy and the peace, the, the, the joy, the deep joy of living in that kind of freedom. Imagine the peace of living only before God and not before people. I'm not talking about not caring about your reputation, of course. I'm talking about what Paul's talking about here. It's where do you seek praise? Approval. We could flip that question around and say, where do you most want to avoid criticism or condemnation or unapproval, right? That can, that can get at the same point if you answer that question. Imagine the glory and the praise that you'll receive from God one day if today the driving force of your life is the glory and praise that comes from God. That's the vision I want you to have 
from this text today. No amount of human approbation, no amount of, pra- no amount of praise and recognition from, from men, no number of accolades, admirations, awards, achievements, promotions, or words of affirmation. Not even the most glorious honor that mankind could give you in this life can hold a candle, can compare to the praise God will give you in the life to come if you live before him, before an audience of one. In the ultimate sense, in the ultimate sense, there's only ever been one true Jew. Jesus fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law flawlessly, without sin, and we depend on that. Nothing we do would matter without that. He never craved the praise of people. He lived before an audience of one. You see that when you read the Gospels. He only ever wanted his father's praise. And he got the praise of his father in heaven by obeying him all the way to the point of death on a cross. Jesus is the true Jew in you. Jesus is the true Jew in you. And he enables you to live like him, like a true Jew. He enables you to fulfill God's law. He enables you to love God with all your heart, with all of your circumcised heart, and to love others as you love yourself. He enables you to live before an audience of one the way he did. He enables you to seek the praise of God alone. He enables you to take up your cross and die. Let's pray. God, thank you for not leaving us to perish in our sins, but for coming to us in the person of Jesus and in the person of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for making us new. And I pray that your word that has been read and proclaimed this morning would do its circumcising work in the hearts of those here who have not received Jesus, who are not born again, who, are, who do not have the inner religion. And I pray that it would also go forth and do its work in those who have been born again, who do, who, who do have new life by your Spirit, and that it would encourage them and convict them and propel them to fulfill the righteous requirements of your law and to seek your praise above all. And we ask for this in the name of Jesus and for his sake, amen.